I am Brian First. And I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And you're listening to Rural Roots. This is the show that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? This was supposed to be one of those episodes I completed earlier on my own. But after everything that happened over the last two weeks, I thought we'll redo it. Do it right, right here at CHMR Studio and see what happens. Well, let's not be mysterious about it. Before we go on with the show, why don't you tell us a little bit about the surf conference in Nelson, BC, and all of the other adventures you had out west? It was an adventure, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> we, I was in BC for two weeks. Um, together, we attended the annual Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation conference, um, and those folks are one of the partners in the show. So this conference happens every year. It happened this time in Nelson, BC. And it's a great chance to meet Canadian rural and international rural scholars, um, as well as rural practitioners. Yeah, there were people from all over the place, all across Canada, and even folks from as far as England, Scotland, Italy, the United States. Yeah, and it was great to have you there, because I used to go along, and it kind of worked, but I could never record enough interviews to have entire episodes completed. But with two of us there, the kind of took care of itself. Yeah, it wasn't a problem. We recorded so many interviews. And we really went beyond conference delegates and we tried to get a feel for the region because it's a, it was a unique chance for us to see a little bit of BC. So we brought totally different interests to these stories. We covered so many different issues and I think it's going to make for way better radio. Um, who did you talk to? So many people. <laughs> uh, I spoke with Megan from Manitoba about high-speed internet and uh, the impact that access to it can have on a rural place. I talked to Amy from Vancouver, who had a lot to say about repurposing historical buildings in rural places. Uh, and I also got to meet with Tracy in her Airstream trailer. Uh, she's an incredible fashion designer whose label, We Are Stories, is produced entirely in Nelson. And another local uh, another local lad, um, Brian Fry, he started as a ski racer, had an injury, headed to Silicon Valley, made his fortune, but then decided to come back to the Kootenays and is now uh, right at the center of a, an innovation gateway uh, in, the, in the Kootenays. Yeah, and I talked to our old friend, Bill Reimer about forest fires, to Ray Bowman about precarious employment in rural areas and all sorts of stats, to Sarah Breen and Sarah Minnes. Sarah and, uh, Breen and I talked about future forestry. Sarah Minnes and I talked about doing re social research in rural areas. Um, Stephanie and Terry at Kootenay's Co-op Radio. That was an adventure. That was hilarious, yeah. <laughs> then they interviewed us as well. Uh, we also did a whole bunch of interviews together on that mini road trip. We talked to Eric with the Harrop Proctor Community Forest. Yeah, and we actually got to go to the sawmill in the very small community of Proctor. That was neat. And But the sad thing is that we're not going to be able to transmit the amazing cedar smell that permeated the air out there. Uh, wasn't that something? It was beautiful. It was really beautiful. Uh, we talked to the guy in Castle who wants to start a marijuana growing co-op. What was his name? That was Todd, and he was such an interesting guy, and it was definitely the first time that any number of goats had ever been involved in a Rural Roots episode. <laughs> That's true, and I also had a goat jump on the hood of my rental, which could have been interesting, but luckily no damage. And I can't even recall everybody who we talked to. That was crazy. It was great. And, oh, 
my trip the week before because mm-hmm. um, I was there for an entire week. So I went to Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops, talked to John Church about use of drones in cattle ranching, uh, Roderick McCormick on indigenous health, Courtney Mason on the relationship between national parks and indigenous people, um, Dana Lee Baker, the executive director of United Way on forest fires. And then I went to Gabriola Island in Sauish Sea. That was fantastic. I talked to mm-hmm. island trustee Heather O'Sullivan and uh, I met Philip Vanini. He is a researcher at um, Royal Roads University in Victoria, and he looks at UNESCO sites, natural sites, and the relationship um, those sites have with surrounding rural areas. Wow, I hope you took lots of pictures. I took some. For some reason, photography and audio don't go together well in my head. I can do one or the other. <laughs> I did get some of my wanderlust out of my system for now, um, so it should be fine. Oh, and we also did the bun run. Okay, let's hold on. We're going to talk about the bun run later. Okay, and you had a brilliant sugar-fueled idea that we'll try to incorporate in some of the episodes in the future. Yeah, but before we do that, we're going to talk about food waste with that Southern European buddy of yours. (laughs) Yes, Matteo. That's right. We are going to talk to Matteo about food waste. And I have to say, throughout this interview, I had a vague sense of guilt because I'm as guilty as everybody else when it comes to wasting food. So Matteo, Matteo Vituari is from the University of Bologna. He studies uh, rural policy, especially the ways it affects food we produce and eat. Uh, it's not an accident that he's at the University of Bologna. Um, University of Bologna is a place where a lot of European research around food and food waste happens because food is so embedded in the culture of the entire Emilia-Romagna region. So what did he have to say about it? Well, his... He's interested in food and food security, but he's particularly interested in food waste. Uh, and it's a really serious problem. FAO indicate that we are losing about the 30% of the food that we are going to produce in the entire food chain. Wow. So basically, a third of all the food that's produced is wasted. Yeah. So according to the World Food Organization, uh, we are going to waste billions of dollars and enormous resources and we'll talk about that later but it actually gets worse because we don't really know how much we waste because we don't really know what food waste is hmm. one of the main issue was and is still the definition of food waste there is still not a a, a consensus one of the first uh, definition that was provided about food waste uh, was uh, coming from fao that uh, uh, identified as food waste uh, any edible uh, substance that instead of being uh, used for human consumption is wasted, lost uh, or degraded uh, at uh, every stage of the food supply chain. Okay, so that kind of makes sense, but I have a feeling that there's a whole lot of other sort of gray areas out there too. Absolutely, and it gets really complicated really fast. Here is Matteo again. Uh, an evolution of this uh, idea, of this uh, definition, again from FAO, was the distinction between food losses and food waste. So with the food losses taking place uh, during uh, uh, agricultural production, post-harvest and processing stages of the f- uh, food supply chain, while food waste occurring uh, uh, at the consumption level, at, uh, at, the di- at the distribution level, so at the end of the f- food supply chain. So he's a little bit academic here, Mm. but essentially we manage to waste food from the moment we plant it to the moment we eat it. 
Right. And it still gets more complicated, and it takes a Canadian to make it more complicated. <laughs> so there is this guy, his name is Dr. Václav Smil. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Manitoba, and he came up with this really interesting way to look at what else should be considered food waste, and it kind of um, plays with your head a bit. So um, Dr. Smil is... Uh, suggesting that uh, ov even overnutrition should be considered uh, as food waste. And in this case, food waste could be calculated as the difference between the quantity of food that each person consumes and what he or she really needs. So that gets, uh, that can gets contentious really quickly. So is there anyone using more practical definitions um, that we could actually use to create some policies and programs to address the issue? Yeah. And uh, of course, those definitions come from um, non-academic organizations because they're focused on actually doing something about it. Um, so one organization that Matteo was talking um, very positively about is a British organization, and it's called RAP, W-R-A-P. And they did just that. We are going to have a link on our website to their pages because they do a lot of really interesting stuff. And they're working with governments, producers, retailers, consumers, and all of that in hope of creating a more resource-efficient and sustainable economy. So food is one of the key areas they're focusing on, and this is how they think about food waste. RAP may makes a, a distinction between avoidable, possibly uh, avoidable, and unavoidable food waste. Avoidable... Uh, Food waste includes food and drinks that are thrown away they, uh, despite being still edible. Uh, so, for example, when you throw away something uh, since the uh, use-by date uh, is, uh, is gone. Uh, then uh, possible, uh, possibly avoidable food waste includes uh, food items that could be eaten or used, but individuals choose not to uh, eat them like for example if you are eating pizza and you are not eating the, the uh, external part of, uh, of your pizza or um, uh, soft fruit skins uh, not everybody is uh, eating the, the skin of peaches or apple so this is possibly uh, avoidable food waste then there is unavoidable food waste which is including what cannot be eaten anyway uh, like bones or tea bags uh, or uh, or fruit stones Geez, I didn't think that an Italian would even be willing to consider the possibility of someone not eating their crusts. <laughs> he said that with just utter disgust on his face. <laughs> uh, I should probably mention that I talked to Matteo in the lobby of a hotel where we were staying. So um, sometimes you hear the noises right. from the lobby in the background. Just ignore those. Okay, so... That definition actually kind of allows you to sort of maybe address things a little bit more easily, and it certainly would help the average person to get what we're talking about. Uh, Matteo and I were talking about the fact that it's actually kind of unrealistic to ha to expect to have a single definition because it's such a global problem, and however you count that problem, it's huge. It's not just the food that we waste, but it's about financial resources and land. It's almost like a double waste mm. and this is how he described it about the 30 percent of the total food produced at the global level is wasted uh, looking at more let's say uh, specific data on the european union for example uh, a project that was uh, completed in 2016 suggested that at the eu20 level uh, about uh, 88 million tons of food waste uh, are produced each year. These 88 million tons of food waste amounts to 143 billion euros per year, so a lot of money, and 
173 kilograms or of food waste per person per year. So quite an amount of uh, uh, food waste per capita. Right, and that's just the EU. That's just the EU. And they're trying to fix this problem. So it seems quite daunting. Uh, where do you even start? Well, it depends which cause you want to address. And Matteo talked a little bit about causes. Um, I think this is a little bit longer clip, so just bear with us here. So when he talks about causes, you'll notice that some of them are kind of expected and understandable, but some of them are um, a little bit less understandable. The causes and the numbers of food waste can be very different uh, region by region and country by country. And if we start with the idea that uh, food waste can be divided between food losses and food waste, so looking at the different stages of the food supply chain, if we take uh, into consideration production, for example, uh, some of the causes uh, can be uh, identified in the limitation on uh, agricultural techniques and transportation and storage uh, uh, infrastructure and this might be more relevant for example in developing countries or climate and uh, uh, environmental factors that affect uh, agricultural production these are uh, external factors that not really depend on uh, the choices of, uh, of uh, producers or on policy interventions then uh, production surpluses that might depend on policy interventions for example within uh, 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 an, uh, an agricultural policy stimulating uh, the, uh, the increase of the level of productivity and so creating potential uh, overproduction, so surplus. Right, and we do that in North America all the time, right? I remember talking to Ivan Emke in one of the ROE episodes and he was talking about the fact that we have cheap food policy in, in, the, um, in Canada and the United States. And I know it doesn't feel that way when you a head of cauliflower costs you in Newfoundland eight bucks. Yeah, but you know, that actually had to come here. It had to be produced elsewhere. It had to drive all the way here. It had to come on a ferry or on an airplane. So the fact that we're not paying $25 a head for our brown cauliflower is saying something, really. Yeah, and the overproduction and overabundance of cheap food can also create waste. But there's another side to this, and it's really prevalent in North America and Europe. It's kind of insidious because we don't even see it. We are thinking, uh, for example, about uh, the uh, about potentially perfectly edible uh, fruit and veggies that are not meeting uh, aesthetic uh, criteria. So, a bad-looking apple, or a bent banana, or a, curv uh, a curved uh, cucumber, that are not then uh, bought uh, by the retail industry since they cannot be sold uh, because they are not meeting the standards and quite a lot of food waste uh, at this level of the uh, food supply chain is caused by this kind of standards and and decision yeah so this is very this is hitting really close to home for us living on the island of newfoundland and as we know it's significantly worse when it comes to the folks in our province who live in labrador uh, you know, we are so used to seeing rotting food on the shelves and, uh, you know, how often have you bought something to only to take it home and, and basically just slide it right into the trash? I know. And it's one of the things that I hate the most is when I buy a pepper that looks perfect on the outside, mm -hmm. but when you slice it, it's completely rotten inside. Yeah. So this retail thing works both ways. Well, I mean, it brings out, I guess it's kind of the rural snob in me, but uh, growing up, I used to have a corn stand sometimes, um, 
I didn't do it a lot. I wasn't a, I wasn't that industrious a child, really. Let's be honest. But a couple a couple summers, I went out, um, you know, a couple times with my corn, and people in my neck of the woods wouldn't buy corn after noon because they felt that after it had been picked for that long, the sugar quality went down so much that it was no longer fit to eat. And when I look at that versus a couple a couple weeks ago, I was uh, during corn season, I was at the store here in St. John's and I saw the date on the side of a big box of corn that was at the store and it had literally been picked two weeks earlier. And I knew that honestly, my mother would have thought that this was fit for the pigs. <laughs> well, see, that's where the next cause of food waste comes in and we know everything about it here and that's the distribution chain we can include limits uh, in uh, on the on the distribution system errors in forecasting uh, the deterioration of uh, products and packaging this may might happen because consumers are handling fruit and veggies uh, at, uh, at the supermarket so after a while they got black or uh, uh, damaged so nobody's going to buy them or for example a, a quite common example uh, is marketing and sales strategy, uh, strategies pay two and get three or other special offers that might push consumers to buy more than what they need and we do that all the time mm-hmm. and then when you look at distribution and marketing there is the whole bunch of food waste that we generate at the household level yeah, and we all know we're doing it, and we all know it's bad, but there's just something that makes it keep on happening. Yeah, here's what Mattel said about it. The causes related to uh, food waste at the household level and uh, at the restaurant level is uh, more related to behavioral factors than uh, uh, to technical factors as in the previous stages of the food chain. And this can include uh, the uh, uh, excess of purchase so if I'm buying too much uh, and uh, my family or uh, or myself doesn't need that, uh, all that food if I'm cooking too much so the excess of portions uh, uh, cooking skills in some cases there are not enough uh, cooking skills to handle properly the, the products or to take good decisions about the preparation of food or even if you are making bad food at the end it, uh, it can be a cause of food waste for example or uh, problems in uh, understanding labeling uh, so throwing away something that is suggested to to be consumed within a certain date instead uh, uh, to be uh, uh, used by a, a certain date or errors for example in uh, storaging within the fridge or within your shelves so that's interesting, uh, especially when he was talking about the fact that in some cases, you know, people don't know how to prepare food. I think that that's true, but I think there's a flip side to that, and that is that we are now living in a societal framework where in most cases you have double incomes in families, and you don't have somebody spending four hours making dinner. We're looking for convenience, but we also feel guilty about buying convenience food. And sometimes that's why you go home with one of those $8 cauliflowers. And you don't even know how or when you're gonna use it, but you know you're supposed to be eating more fresh vegetables. So I I honestly don't even know how we can win to some degree. I know, and I I can't tell you how many times I bought a head of salad and didn't make it that day. You know, it was in the fridge for two days and then it's just waste. 
yeah. because it's completely rotten. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that brings us actually to that um, to that link between food waste and food security. Um, it's funny as I was talking to Matteo, I was envisioning these happy solutions where you know we don't waste food here in North America and Europe, and we can make sure that all that food would be useful somewhere where people are experiencing food insecurity. But of course, that's way more complicated. Food waste is very complex. And obviously, uh, if we think about food security and we think about the number of food waste, so 30% of, or 88 uh, million tons uh, in Europe, uh, the immediate uh, feedback is on, well, we by addressing food waste, we are uh, supporting the... Uh, the um, fight uh, against uh, uh, food insecurity. Uh, well, on, on one side it is true, uh, on the other side it is uh, uh, difficult in the sense that food security it is also a matter of logistic uh, and uh, 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 places are quite uh, uh, far away one from each other. So for example, if we address food waste uh, at the European level, that, that doesn't mean that we are increasing the food security uh, level in uh, another part of uh, of the world, but for sure, uh, um, uh, uh, let's say food waste uh, should be embedded in food culture. So improving uh, food use and reducing the amount of food waste uh, is probably supporting in any context uh, food security in the, uh, in the sense that we are going to handle and use better food waste and if we think about the definition of Vladimir's meal uh, we are uh, using food in a better way also for ourselves in a context of uh, let's say better diets or more sustainable diets uh, and uh, food security is not only the uh, it is not on the only problem we can see the uh, also a quite significant problem of uh, uh, obesity in many countries so in also in that case there is a direct link between uh, food waste uh, using uh, uh, the definition of uh, professor's meal so it's not really just an issue of oh well you know i left a couple of old apples in my fridge it's also how many resources went into the production of those apples so you have the waste of the food itself but then you have the countless resources that contributed to producing that product I really wanted to understand the scale of this. So I asked Matteo to walk me through some of the numbers, and I almost wish I didn't. Wasting food, we are wasting uh, uh, also all the natural resources that uh, are related to food, that are used in order to produce the food that we are going to waste. Uh, so water, energy, land. So if we think about uh, uh, food waste in, termo, in terms of water waste, the amount of water required uh, to produce the food we waste every year on a global scale is about uh, 250,000 billion liters uh, that could supply New York domestic water needs for the next uh, 120 years, so quite a lot. That's incredible. Uh, I mean, the water waste alone, but it also almost makes me feel like we we need to be thinking about our own personal food waste footprint and what that actually means beyond simply the food that's going into the garbage. I know. And listen, listen to the rest of this. The numbers are astonishing. The uh, food that is produced uh, but wasted uh, at the global level 
requires about 1.4 billion hectares of land, which is close to 30% of the world uh, uh, agricultural land area. And in this case, we can go back to food security because we are, uh, we are using land uh, just to, to produce something that we are not going to use, but to waste. Or uh, if we think in terms of uh, carbon footprint, uh, the carbon footprint of uh, food wasted globally every year is uh, uh, about 3.3 billion tons of carbon dioxide. If we consider food waste uh, as a country, uh, food waste w would be the third top emitter after USA and, uh, and China. So water, land, uh, carbon footprint, but also money. Uh, so beside uh, the uh, environmental cost of uh, uh, food waste, food waste is also a loss of uh, economic value. And on a global scale, the uh, economic cost of the overall amount of food waste is about uh, 750 billion of US dollar per year, which is uh, equivalent to the GDP of a country as uh, Switzerland. Wow. So I don't think that we're going to have a lot of volunteers to go live in the land of food waste, which is the <laughs> third greatest carbon emitter right behind the U.S. and China. <laughs> it's nuts, right? <laughs> and I guess, you know, we're laughing just because it's just such an it's a you can't even you can barely even consider the extent of this problem. And, and the other thing that I I'm suspecting is that probably a lot of this wastage is happening in rural places that, you know, perhaps there is land, but when I'm thinking about water, when I'm thinking about energy, those are places where there's sometimes even less available than in other parts of the country. And it could be used in so much more productive ways. Right. Right. So what can we do about it? Well, there are things we can do about it. And uh, it's interesting because I don't think I quite expected this kind of answer from Matteo. Food is very local, regional, so differences are extremely important. So uh, potential policy interventions need to be targeted considering local food systems and the culture of a place mm -hmm. and how food is consumed, how food is, a pre is a prepared and, pur and purchased. Uh, so there are not really uh, solutions, one fit all solutions, but it is important to uh, adjust uh, policy interventions and practices uh, depending on uh, the uh, type and the characteristics of the uh, a specific uh, food system. So, uh, depending also on the amount and the characteristic of food waste, I was mentioning maybe in, in developing countries, uh, storage might might be relevant, so policies uh, should address or, or, or stimulate uh, better storage by stimulating the introduction of innovation uh, within the management of distribution systems, uh, or in other cases where food waste uh, is mostly at the household level, like for example in Europe uh, or in the US and Canada, policies should uh, address behavioral causes, so should stimulate behavioral change uh, at the household level, so uh, at the consumer level. Uh, so policies might be diverse, and uh, if we look at the at the European context, uh, we have identified about uh, 53 different uh, EU uh, legislative uh, acts uh, with implications uh, on food waste within different policy areas. So agriculture, fisheries, enterprise and, and industry, taxation, trade, health and consumers. Uh, environment. So this is suggesting that uh, food waste is a multi-level and multi-sector 
uh, issue and uh, need to be uh, addressed by uh, a better coordination between different units addressing different policy areas. Something that the European Commission is doing uh, uh, at the moment is launching a EU platform on uh, food losses and uh, food waste. This platform started the wo uh, to work uh, in October 2016 and they are uh, trying to stimulate a better stakeholder dialogue, so trying to uh, address uh, food waste uh, together with the, with the stakeholders uh, from the different segments uh, of the food chain uh, and looking specific issues for example as date marking uh, or food donations but really policy interventions has to be uh, let's say adjusted to uh, the characteristics of uh, local food systems okay so he's basically saying it's it's a global problem but it's one that can be solved on a number of different levels, all the way from top level down through um, national, regional, and maybe local and dare I say, personal? Yeah. If the, if the EU can start making headway, then it should be easier in, in a province like, uh, like Newfoundland and Labrador or in a country. Does it look like people are moving in that direction or is he, pretty much doom and gloom. <laughs> uh, Matteo is actually quite optimistic, but maybe that's just Matteo. Um, he thinks the things are changing mm. just very slowly. And um, he felt quite positive about some recent developments that he's been seeing. And I think that last clip was the longest clip we played. The rest will be a little bit shorter. In the last uh, four or five years, there is uh, uh, a lot of movement uh, on uh, uh, on food waste with quite a lot of governments and international organizations uh, uh, working on uh, food waste reduction by um, stimulating uh, actions and uh, launching campaign uh, uh, addressing food waste. Europe uh, uh, started uh, to invest quite a lot on, uh, uh, on food waste in 2008 to 2010. Uh, US and, uh, and Canada for example are uh, following uh, uh, let's say most in the recent years but also if, if we look in terms of uh, international organizations I was mentioning before the World, the, the World Resource uh, Institute uh, which is developing a, a, a protocol uh, for uh, quantifying uh, uh, food waste and losses or even uh, FAO is working quite uh, uh, extensively on food waste through the Safe Food Initiative UNEP uh, is working also uh, on food waste uh, with a different approach uh, uh, with the, the uh, initiative Think It uh, Safe. To underline the uh, international relevance of food waste, uh, in September 25, 2015, uh, food waste was included by the UN within uh, the uh, Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which is quite important. So uh, the number 12 uh, of the Sustainable Development Goals aims at uh, ensuring sustainable consumption and production patterns uh, and uh, suggests an additional focus, uh, which is Sustainable Development Goal 12.3, which is to reinforce the fight against food waste, uh, underlying that uh, by 2030 uh, food waste uh, should be uh, cut by half uh, at the retail uh, and consumer level uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, similarly, uh, f uh, 
food losses uh, should be halved uh, along uh, uh, production uh, and supply chain. Okay, so the good news is that it seems like there are some clear solutions and that uh, we do have pretty good consensus. This is something that we need to improve. Uh, and it seems like there are uh, actually quite a few organizations who are stepping up to the problem. And it's interesting to me that a lot of these organizations are um, very much major international organizations. He mentioned United Nations Development Program. He mentioned uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, which are big international mm-hmm. organizations. Uh, but it's also interesting that places like University of Bologna, and I know here at Memorial and also at University of Guelph, we have researchers looking at some of these things, especially when it comes to household waste and consumer waste and looking how we could better compost and create less of it. But I think that uh, we're kind of moving forward. There's just a lot of work to do. You said something just now, um, you know, when you were talking about the people at some of these universities who are working on these issues. We have people working at the policy level, but then we also have so many people working on, uh, like, what is food culture and what does food mean to us? And I think it's one of those issues. The reason we kind of feel so guilty and cringy talking about this stuff is because it's so intimate. It's something we do every day. And, uh, you know, this is one of those situations where we actually can have an impact. It's something that's part of our everyday life and who we are. This would be music to Matthias' ears. Because as we finish the interview, he said there's one more thing we really need to talk about and we almost never do when it comes to food and food waste. And the aspect that he wanted to talk about was the food culture. One of the most important uh, uh, effect probably is to raise the uh, attention on the value of food. Uh, also because in the recent year food is something that is quite accessible uh, in many places and at a very low uh, economic cost. And so uh, we are not giving, uh, in, in, in many situations we are not giving uh, to food uh, the real value of food which is going behind uh, a low uh, economic cost, but it is a complex set of different values, including uh, cultural values, uh, environmental impacts, uh, uh, social values, because food is embedded in our culture and uh, in our society. Yeah, as we've moved towards this culture of food convenience, maybe we have lost some of that connection, which, you know, if you look, if you look further back than even 30 years ago, would have just been second nature. Yeah, and it's so hard to actually preserve some of these things. In in our household, we do try to cook, and Mm -hmm. I enjoy cooking. We're both cooks, aren't we, (laughs) Warren? Yes, we are. (laughs) And we're both obsessed with food. (laughs) We are, but it's so hard to do it. I mean, you work all day, you come home, you know, there's homework, and the house needs to be cleaned, and there's a ton of other Mm -hmm. things that require your attention, and you want to spend some time with your family. And then somebody has to cook, and it's kind of a solitary activity. And you know what else? We're, we, you know, both of our cases are this. We aren't living in the in the towns where we were born, for example. So, you know, I have all these memories of cooking, and I know you do too, with my grandmothers, with my mother. Uh, but now, yeah, cooking has become something that I do because I need to do it, and it's no longer part of that, like, community aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I try to introduce my kids into that bit that is about community and it's not always easy mm-hmm. yeah. anyway i really like talking to mattel i like these interviews that 
kind of make me look at something from a completely different viewpoint. And also, I know that you really like talking about food. And that's why I want to talk about the bun run. Oh, the bun run. (laughs) Okay, tell us about the bun run. Okay, so we knew we were going to head out to the sawmill that we already mentioned earlier in the episode. And when people heard we were heading out to Harrop and Proctor, uh, they said, you have to do a bun run. We said, what? Bun run? Um, We like the sounds of that, but we're not sure what you mean. (laughs) And we were told that there is nowhere else in BC and probably the universe where you can get cinnamon buns like these. So after we, uh, you know, smelled the cedar and saw the awesome stuff happening at the sawmill, we headed down the road to the village bakery and uh, we could smell the buns before we even entered the building. And they were huge and delicious. and so good. And they were better than we even thought they were going to be. And we also learned that, so we actually didn't properly complete the bun run. The final uh, destination is, of course, the bun. But when you do the bun run, you're actually supposed to bike there. So uh, we had the bun, but we didn't have the run. And (laughs) certainly the calorie differential was significantly... (laughs) (laughs) on the wrong side of things but we did manage to talk to ruby we did talk to ruby she was working at the bakery and she very kindly answered a couple of questions for us let me play the first ruby clip we're in proctor um bc i don't know this is a pretty small bakery it's like proctor's maybe how many people is proctor ronnie like Like, 200 like 200 people in the outlying areas is maybe like 500 so yeah um i don't know i think we're mostly famous for our cinnamon buns People bike out from Nelson and buy them a lot. They're pretty big, which is the drawing factor, I guess. So the interesting thing is, though, it's also kind of a cool building. Like when we approached it, we saw that not only did it have the bakery and a really sweet little outdoor sitting area, the library was there and the office for the community forest that we had been to interview. So it's already kind of acting as a bit of a community hub. And we actually asked Ruby to tell us a bit more about the building. It was an old schoolhouse. There used to be a school here um, above. There used to also be a restaurant, but that's long gone. Um, yeah, they'd, I guess, I don't, know, I don't know how long ago the school shut down. It was probably more than 40 years ago, but yeah, I don't and know what else. What else is up there now? Uh, there's a little library. Um, there's the community forest, like, meeting area. Someone works up there. Not much else, really. I think that's about it. And then there are the buns. Yeah. But you know what? There aren't even all that many buns. It's really, they only make about 120 buns a day, but they're so good. And, uh, you know, I guess people feel justified after that bike ride that it's really become kind of a thing. Yeah. I love that it's kind of a thing. Here's what Ruby said about the kind That's of That's the thing. bun run on their bikes. Yeah, it's pretty good. I've biked it a couple of times myself. Lots of fun. Um, it's about a, maybe an hour and a half bike ride from Nelson and then like a ferry ride and then maybe another 25 minutes to Proctor. So it's a bit of a trek, but it's worth it, I think. Yeah. It was worth it. And I am craving those buns now because I'm really hungry, actually. <laughs> uh, it's Friday afternoon. It's Friday afternoon. <laughs> uh, and as we were sitting there, high on sugar, uh-huh. uh, you had a great idea. And maybe I'll, I'll say how we what the problem was that you solved. I right. think, I hope you solved it. So we talked to Stephanie um, at the Kutnis Co-op Radio. And one of the things they mentioned is that it would be great if Rural Roots, every episode, 
was the same length. Now that's really hard for us to do because we never know how long our interviews are going to end up being. So if it's a little bit longer than let's say 45 minutes, that's easy to deal with. We can chop that down to 45 minutes. But if it's a little bit shorter than 45 minutes, we need something to fill the air. And we were totally full of cinnamon buns at that point. And it was kind of making me nostalgic because I just loved the fact that there was this tiny place, but it was kind of like put on the map by the existence of this one, not even bakery, it was the buns themselves. So that got me thinking to, you know, my neck of the woods where I grew up and, um, one of those products that people would go from from miles uh, miles and miles to come find were Tavistock sausages. They were these, I think they were smoked, they were pretty salty, pretty delicious sausages. I don't even know what store it was that we bought them at. They were just called Tavistock sausages and they brought people from far and wide. And I got to thinking that there are probably a lot of towns that have one neat thing that kind of puts them on the map. So we were thinking, why don't we actually do a bit of a recurring feature on that topic? Um, And we're going to call it on the map. What puts your town on the map? Sure. So how are people going to get in touch with us? Well, there are a couple of ways. They can just go to our website, which is Rural Roots Podcasts, and Roots is spelled R-O-U-T-E-S dot com, and they can click on the mail icon. Uh, or actually, they could probably just contact us on Facebook if they were interested, too. Yeah, that would probably be the best way, actually. They can get in touch with us, they can message us, and uh, leave us a phone number, and we'll call them. Yeah, and so basically, all we're asking you is, what puts your town on the map? And this should be really fun. I think so. Yeah, I can't wait to hear those stories. So, time to close another episode. Yeah, you've just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My name is Rebecca Caho. And I'm Brian Fierst, and you just heard from Dr. Matteo Vituari at the University of Bologna, where he studies complicated global problem of food waste that requires many, many, many local and global solutions. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, which brings together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. And we recorded the show at the CHMR Campus Radio in St. John's. And the song that you hear at the beginning and the end of this show is called North Star. And it was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listen to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know if you like the show. If you listened to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting the program. The show is also available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, just visit RuralRootsPodcast.com. That's all one word, Rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, Podcasts.com. Podcasts.com.